My name is Maria. And I'm Rachel. And we're the hosts of Remember Me. Each week we'll be tackling a different component of FTD, and we invite you to come along on this journey with us. We'll be interviewing the Dream Team at the Penn FTD Center, a multidisciplinary team of doctors, social workers, researchers, and beyond. This season is a beautiful combination of stories and science where you'll hear from both experts and past guests. Whether you're on the other side of this journey, if you're in the thick of it, or sadly just starting to hear about FTD, our goal in creating this series is to provide more context, more understanding, and lots of compassion for both you and your loved one. As we share the stories and we listen to the science, it's our hope that this season reminds you that you are not on this journey alone. This is season eight of Remember Me. Put yourself back in that spot where you're like pregnant and not the second time. Um, (laughs) And you're like becoming a new mom and you have all of these questions and you're like moving into your parents' house and everything is in flux. And then the only person you want to talk to can't respond to you. Like, what did that feel like? (laughs) I don't know how to describe it other than like an out of body experience. Like I know she could still say some words because Mike reminds me that she would say, don't worry, I'm going to live a long time. She would, she would use the few words she had left to comfort me, but it really just felt like once we had it all laid out and we knew what we were dealing with to a certain extent, all all the opportunity to ask her all the questions and communicate with her was done. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, I can't imagine it because sort of the same, but just that feeling of watching somebody like, this is how we relate to people is by talking and communicating. Right. So what did you do? Like, how did you manage all these feelings or did you? I've been reflecting a lot about this as we've been producing this season because I think when you're in the moment, it's very hard to reflect. You just feel like frustrated, overwhelmed. You're just trying to deal with what's right in front of you. You're trying to get through the day. You're trying to take care of your person. And I feel like some of the feelings and reflections come later Mm -hmm. because you just don't like, you're just like, what is happening? Like you just, your brain just, it's overloaded. You can't process it all. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I processed it. I think I tried to find ways to communicate with her through putting on music, through trying to make her laugh at silly jokes, but I had so many questions. I still have so many questions that I just, I was staring at her and I could ask her, but she could not respond. Yeah, I I don't know how to describe it. It was, it's something that I just feel like people don't understand unless you go through it. And I even remember, and I I brought this up 
you know, when we went to Penn and shared our stories, I, I even felt a pretty isolated within my support group, my FTD mm -hmm. support group, because for whatever reason, a lot of the people there, you know, their loved one had behavioral variant and they were dealing with very different challenges. Now, my mom ended up having behaviors as her disease progressed, but I remember people saying to me, saying to my dad, you know, can you get her to write on a piece of paper? Can you get her to write? And I'm like, I don't have the science knowledge or like education to be able to explain. Like, it's not that she like lost her voice in the little mermaid. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Totally. You know, it's not, it's like the processing, the word finding that mm -hmm. lends itself to writing as well. Like, one person and people are very well-meaning, you know, it's not, they're not trying to be difficult, but like one woman saying, can you teach her sign language? And I just kind of bluntly was like, there's no new skills to be learned here. Like that's, right. and this I think is it. Yeah. This, this bar is not going up. Right. Yeah. So it's a foggy time. I mean, talk about like, you know, I'm pregnant I mean, I, I quick plug for the blog. Um, you know, I know we've got a lot of stuff going on in the blog and I don't often write on the blog. I'm not the writer. Rachel is an incredible writer. I, I'm learning to write for my, you know, write to get out my emotions, but I did write a blog about becoming a mom. And then, you know, second time around the infertility journey while caring for my mom. And I share a story in there about how when I shared with my mom that I was pregnant with my first child, she looked at me and said, Wegmans, because she wanted to go to Wegmans, I think, or maybe she was using that word for other words. Like, right. You have no idea. Was like, mom, I'm pregnant. And she's like, Wegmans? So today we have the privilege of having Dr. Nevler, of course, from UPenn FTD Center here with us. And we are going to dive into the topic of PPA. So primary progressive aphasia. Just to kick us off, Dr. Nevler, can you just provide our listeners your, in layman's terms, definition of PPA? First of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a privilege, and I'll try to address your questions to the best of my ability, but you can totally guide me if you want me to be more later, more, more professional. Um, I usually like to try to explain the term in late terms, so start with the end. Aphasia is just a medical term or a fancy term for a language disorder, which means that the disease or injury in the brain involves the parts of the brain that process language. And there are several such parts of the brain that deal with language in some way. The term progressive comes to describe that symptoms become worse with time or more severe. This is in contrast to, for example, something like a stroke, which could also cause aphasia. But in stroke, the symptoms tend to be stable or sometimes improve a little bit with time. So this is where progressive comes from. And then finally, primary can be a little bit confusing, but it means that the reason for the aphasia stems from a problem with the brain itself, with the brain tissue, and not something related that causes it, like a stroke. 
if a stroke causes aphasia, we would refer to it as a secondary cause for aphasia. If somebody has, heaven forbid, a tumor or something that puts pressure on those parts that deal with language, that could also cause symptoms that look like aphasia, but then we have something else to treat. So that that's the best explanation I can give to primary. The bottom line is that when we say primary progressive aphasia, we usually refer very specifically to aphasia that stems from neurodegeneration. So there's a degenerative process in the brain, sort of like you have degeneration in muscle tissue, you have degeneration in the brain, but there's a lot that we still don't know about it. We see all these proteins that shouldn't be there and they're clogging out our brain or doing something. And then we see atrophy and we call this process neurodegeneration and that causes PPA. So it's important that that word is in there so that we know that we're dealing with a neurodegenerative process and not something else that is treatable in another way altogether. So that's what PPA is. That was the best I've ever heard it explained. <laughs> okay. Okay. So PPA we know is a part of FTD. What part of the brain does PPA normally affect? So the parts that are typically affected in PPA are those that involve processing of language, but also some parts that interact with, with them that are important for other things like, for example, passing judgment or making decisions, processing emotions. Most of these areas are located in the front and the temporal side or behind our ears uh, of the brain. And this is why we call it frontotemporal dementia or degeneration. So... I know what some of the first signs were for my mom, but you know, when you are seeing patients, what are some of the first signs that point you in the direction of someone having PPA? I would actually be interested in what your mother's first signs that you noticed were. Is that okay to ask questions yeah. back? Or oh my gosh, like... I love it. You're rocking it. Um, also, you have to know that um, you're probably going to edit this out. It's not important, but I want you to know that I feel like I'm learning more from the two of you on FTD and PPA because my, you know, direct exposure to patients was from two years of observing Murray mm -hmm. Grossman. Um, so I had some interaction with patients and I listened a lot. So I listened to patients mm -hmm. all the time through these recordings that I'm working on. Um, That's so sweet. But, un oh but unfortunately, God. I was not allowed to manage my own patients in the past few years since I've come to the States. And in Israel, I don't think I, if I had PPA patients, I didn't know it mm. yet. So I think there was one, maybe one time that I suspected somebody with dementia may have had frontal dementia, but um, this is why I came here because it's, um, it's a rare disease and even neurologists don't, um, don't have the written, like general neurologists don't have the skills to assess it. And it was, you know, it was a privilege to sit with Murray Grossman and see how he unfolds FTD in front of my eyes. And suddenly it became so clear to me, what's the difference between logopinic variant and semantic variant mm -hmm. or non-fluent and how he unveils it, that there's, there's no prob problem with grammar. This is, and then suddenly it looks like Alzheimer's disease. Um, mm. So it was really, um, a revelation, but just to be clear about that, that I'm not considered a doctor here, you know, okay. like a, but you're, a the way you doctor. speak is so But you're beautiful. a poet. <laughs> yeah. Do you write? Is it? Oh my gosh. I'm like already almost in tears. Okay. 
it's thank you so, for that compliment though really quick yes. that was very very sweet that thank means you so, so much, much to us. yes um it is so amazing when we meet people who are so passionate about our community and about learning and about pushing this disease forward in terms of research and science um so the first signs for my mom before she was diagnosed with primary progressive aphasia was that um, we noticed her shortening words. Uh, we thought it was like a, I don't know, like a cute kind of almost talking in text speak. Um, she even shortened, you know, how people say OMG instead of, oh my God, she would say right. OM. So, um, it was a lot of that. We did not know what that meant at the time. We didn't know that was anything related to her changing, but now looking back, shortening a lot of words and her vocabulary getting smaller. Also her first language was Greek and she was having a lot of trouble speaking Greek on the phone with her mom and her sister. Again, these are things like looking back, we're like, those were the initial signs. But the reason that we took her to the doctor was she just in general was having trouble communicating. She wasn't communicating the way that she did before. Her sentences were different. They were shorter. If you asked her a complex question, she could not provide a complex answer like she used to. And it was just very confusing and bizarre. And she was 52 at the time. So that's one presentation of PPA, but I know there's a lot of, I don't know if you call them subtypes, but what are some of the common things that, you know, are seen in terms of the initial presentation of PPA? Okay. So when people first start showing symptoms, it's often either difficulty finding words or difficulty with speaking. Now, Word finding difficulty can start off looking like difficulty with names, like of objects, for example, but it slowly progresses to become what we call loss of object knowledge. And that's the most prominent feature of semantic variant PPA. And we can talk about what loss of object knowledge means if you want a bit later, because it sounds simple, but it's something that's very hard to grasp. In other cases, people have increasing difficulty Speaking, not because they forget the words or their meanings, but because they lose the ability to combine the words into meaningful sentences. So they have a problem specifically with the rules of grammar. And this also manifests in comprehension. So people could have a hard time understanding or following instructions or complex instructions. This is the hallmark of non-fluent agrammatic PPA or NAPPA. And NAPPA patients also show speech errors with these mispronunciation of sounds. And this can worsen gradually to the point that people can become mute and not be able to speak or communicate uh, verbally at all. I don't know if that's common knowledge. There was a comprehension component with PPA. And I don't know if I just always focused on the behavioral because my dad was extremely behavioral. Is it a comprehension problem that then presents itself as a speech delay or is it a speech delay that then pushes to a comprehension problem? Does that make sense? 
It doesn't look like it. Both I understand your question, no, okay. but I think, okay. first of all, I, I said is specifically because a lot of folks don't realize that it can also uh, affect comprehension. It's it's comprehension of complex instructions. So for okay. example, we have videos that show this by the way in patients. So uh, if you see evaluation, if you if you had a chance to go with one of your parents to a neurologist, you might for example see him ask him to do something that involves multiple steps. Take this piece of paper, fold it in half and put it on the floor. Or Murray Grossman um, would say, point to the door after you point somewhere else. So this multiple step, in order to understand it and follow it, you need to understand grammar. So what happens with an NAPPA patient is that they would follow the commands in the order that they hear them. So you could easily miss it and not see that there's a comprehension problem unless the grammar after is put there so that you need to to understand that little preposition to be able to follow the commands and in a meaningful way and not just by the order that they were given to you. So it's not very simple comprehension. It's comprehension of multi-step or complex instructions. But you might notice that people might start, I don't know, having difficulty operating something, some new device in the house because they have to follow these instructions and that's really complex for them. And people hide it really well too. So... It's important to understand that aphasia is a problem with language. So it manifests in all the modalities that we use language for. So it's with speaking, it's with reading, it's with writing, and it's also with understanding and repeating sometimes. So we test all these different aspects of language because different types of aphasia manifest differently in different modalities. But for example, and this is one of the problems, you can overcome aphasia by writing. Right. If somebody has ALS, you have all these devices or you can simply take a little board and write down. But when you have aphasia, you cannot do that because your writing will also be affected by the language. It's just another modality, but you're still processing language to do that. So comprehension is a part of that. And it can be affected in different types of aphasias to different extents. You brought up such an important piece that I don't think I've talked about which was when I went to support group, I think the majority of people in my support group were loved ones of someone with behavioral variant FTD. And when I expressed that my mom could not communicate with me, I got a laundry list of suggestions of, can you teach her sign language? Can she write? And I didn't have the tools or really the knowledge to really explain well to people, but I knew enough to be like, she's not going to be able to follow instruction. Like it's more than speaking words. It's the process. It's she's not going to be able to learn a new way, or maybe you can correct me on that. I didn't feel she was going to be able to learn a new way to communicate with us. But I think people were very hung up on the, she can't like, maybe it was like her voice. I don't know. But that was a frustrating piece as a caregiver was, you know, it's more than just the language. It's the comprehension. It's, it's, it's so, so much deeper than that. Does that make sense? It does because language involves all of these modalities. And also because it's a progressive primary disease of the brain, you can't learn your way around it. So when you go to physical occupation, all of these different paramedical professionals that really help people deal with things like stroke, for example, there are very good ways to help 
people with stroke-related aphasia that won't work for primary progressive aphasia, for example. So they can't learn their way out of it. It's not a stable injury. It progresses and it will become worse and worse. And it's very difficult to circumvent. There might be ways, by the way. I don't want to like take all hope away. And there are all sorts of apps that do help at certain stages of disease. But yeah, what you're saying is exactly right. Um, by the way, I remember that when you talked to our group, you mentioned this, that it was mostly BO variant and you felt kind of out of place and it was not a lot to talk about PPA. I was a little bit surprised about that because a lot of people with behavioral variant also has a little bit of aphasia. The typical thing is that they sometimes have at least partial uh, criteria that beats semantic variants. So they could have this semantic impairment where you could notice it sometimes where they're having trouble finding the right words for things and that can be mixed with behavioral variant. So I would suspect that in that group, there were folks who were you know, caring for loved ones who may have also had some features of aphasia, and but maybe they didn't realize it that well, or maybe it wasn't the predominant, you know, thing, and they had worse things to worry about with behavioral features, but they do often come together, and you don't have to meet the full definition of aphasia to have some kind of problem with your language that can also affect the way that you're communicating and the way that you can care for a person like that, that has difficulty understanding you or communicating their needs and their wants to you, right? Dr. Nevler, I've never heard it explained that way before. And there's a light bulb above my head now. So thank you so much for really diving into that component of PPA. I think one of the questions we get a lot are, how, how are these diseases diagnosed? Like, what does it look like to diagnose somebody with FTD PPA? So when I saw our questions, I thought that was the one million dollar question out there. Oh, do you, we can do that at the? That could be the grand finale if you want. We can move. No, <laughs> uh, I think I think that um, it's tough for people to realize how tough of a diagnosis it is. Right now, the what we call the gold standard to diagnose PPA is with what we call clinical criteria. So basically, it means that we need to see the symptoms and the signs that we know. These typically include specific symptoms and signs with or without supporting evidence from ancillary tests, such as MRI or some kind of PET scan. Now, it's mostly based on the clinical features, and the diagnosis usually comes with a degree of confidence. So if we also have supporting evidence from MRI, for example, where we see the atrophy in places that fit the clinical features that we identify, then we're more confident of the diagnosis. And if we have identified an FTD causing mutation, or if we have autopsy findings that support FTD, then we call it a definite diagnosis or a definite PPA. And the diagnosis also requires exclusion of other other problems for secondary aphasia, right? We usually do that by looking at the MRI and we see that there's no signs for a stroke that could explain it. There's no sign for a tumor that could explain it. We might want to do all sorts of some blood work to see if there's anything else that we can treat better than neurodegeneration that explains the aphasia. So that's not in the criteria per se necessarily, but it's also something that we do when we diagnose PPA. You know, I don't know, 80% of our research is aimed to help with the, you know, more accurate diagnosis. Because in the end, the these clinical syndromes, NAPPA, SVPPA, BVFTD, we're trying to pinpoint where the, the problem is in the brain and also what exactly it is, because 
it's nice if we can treat the symptoms, but it's like giving you paracetamol when you have eye fever. We really want to find the cause, which right now for us is what protein it is. Is it tau or is it TDP or is it something else? Because that's where the clinical trials are. That's where we're designing therapeutics that hopefully will actually this is what we call disease modifying treatments. We want to modify the disease and not just treat the symptoms. So the whole point of these clinical criteria is to try and guess what the underlying protein is in vivo when the person is alive and hopefully in early stages. And so we're trying to devise all these sophisticated tests. And what I do is do is do speech analysis. So I try to see if I can identify these causes using just recorded speech from people. But it's a tough diagnosis, and that's something to know because people feel there's delay. There's always delay in the diagnosis, and it's frustrating, but we need the time and expertise to identify these symptoms and signs that are very difficult to identify and very easy to miss. And unfortunately, the time frame of when and how it progresses is also a part of the diagnosis which is why there's such a delay. And it's frustrating to all of us. We want to be able to identify the disease when you can barely hear any problem in, you know, right. at home. Do you find or have you been learning that people living with behavioral variant are diagnosed sooner than people living with PPA because it's more subtle or, you know, it sounds like it's it's very challenging to diagnose PPA. So are there any sort of patterns you're seeing with research that like we're able to get behavioral variant diagnosed sooner or? I'm wondering if there's data on this. I've never really looked into this. So I, I can't be evidence-based just on my common sense and exposure. I don't think that it's easier to okay. identify <laughs> behavioral variants. And you have yeah. your friend here. <laughs> who I think whose story is uh, actually one of the more extreme stories that I've heard. But A, people are very good at hiding symptoms initially because we have other brain functions that are preserved. Uh, We call this cognitive reserve. And so we're very good at concealing initially. I think that's what probably your mom was doing with the OM or whatever Mm -hmm. that was. She was probably, she looked a bit like, oh, OM. Yeah. She was concealing. (laughs) People do that a lot in Alzheimer's disease as well. They're concealing something that they don't know. So they start talking about something else or they give some kind of silly reason and they don't want you to know that, oh, wait, I don't know what I had for breakfast. And in behavioral variants, the presentation can be so um, just weird and, and unexpected. You know, people just suddenly change their personality. And sometimes mm-hmm. you don't know because oh, they were always kind of stubborn. Maybe they're just a little bit more stubborn. And We also give excuses because it's hard for us to deal with reality that could, this is something we do naturally. It's, I think it's subconscious. We we all do this. We, in other elements of our lives as well. So I think this happens a lot with behavioral variants. Something needs, things need to build up or something big has to happen. And that usually what brings people or the caregiver or the boss or somebody to bring that person to the physician, often there's lack of insight or minimal insight from the person itself, himself or herself. And then the doctor starts asking questions back. And then we start interpreting retrospectively. And it's always easier to judge things retrospectively and say, oh, yeah, so maybe that was already a sign that something was wrong. This is very, very common and typical. And I think it takes time for people who suffer from the disease, definitely, 
from the people around them and also from the clinicians who are trying to diagnose them. So I think BVFTD is, I would even guess that it's more challenging to diagnose than PPA. Like the behavioral component, it's, it's just, I feel because I had a front row seat to it, that it was just so bizarre. Like when somebody messes with their language, you're like, huh, that's not right. I should keep my eye on it. But when you see your loved one just kind of flying off the rails, you're like, what is, it feels more urgent. Like I have to do something. And the speech is like something, are you getting older? Are you confused? Are you stressed? You don't always go to something's wrong. There's so many, I feel like there's so many more components. If I don't sleep well, I can't find my words as easy. If I'm stressed, my brain is more foggy, right. but I'm not eating chalk outside. You know what right. I mean? I just, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm dumbing it down too no. easily, but it just feels so like your behavior is like, I think it's just noticeable. Like, oh, you've worn that same outfit for 17 days in a row. Right. What are you doing? You know? Yes, I agree with you like a million percent. And I've tried to articulate this a couple of times with friends of like, once we had the diagnosis for my mom, it was almost as if she couldn't communicate anymore. Like it's it like almost, she was holding on. Yeah. Like yeah. it's almost like it took us to the absolute point of like, it was so bad that we needed to, to get her help and get her and she got the diagnosis that yeah it felt like after that I couldn't have any meaningful conversations with her anymore I don't want to say that in like a mean way but just like or maybe it was just that once we received the diagnosis it was just so clear okay clear yeah totally yeah. I feel like it's the same like they also like coincide and yes my dad yes. said really weird things during his like presentation of like, something's not right. He would say weird things. And now with the comprehension and all, I'm like, whoa, it's all the, the synapses in my brain are firing, you know? Okay. Right. Because my mom numerous... became behavioral too, you know? Yeah. And they ahead. just go boop, boop, boop. Yeah. Okay. It's very common with actually a lot of dementia types. It's just a matter of when in the course of the disease and at the end stage dementia, everybody looks the same. I know it's a bad thing to say, but it's how it starts off. But I've had numerous opportunities to, I don't know, be called to consult in the ER, for example, and doctors are not not knowing how to deal with this patient. What's going on? We can't even get a clear story. And they're calling me and they don't even know what to ask me because they just don't understand what's going on with the patient. And they can't even articulate a question. And I come in there and I talk with a patient and the patient has dementia and nobody realized it. Nobody knows. And it's, and you know, I take a little paper and you, you mentioned the clock drawing test. That's my mini cog in the ER. Just draw this 10 past 10, 10 past 11, just draw. And then you show the, the drawing you see something's wrong cognitively. This person is not okay cognitively. And that's why you, you can get information from this person. They're unable to understand you and get answers. So now you have to talk with the caregiver and we'll deal with the dementia later because we need to know what's going on. So that happens so many times. So you shouldn't feel, you know, beat yourself up about not picking up these things or 
because it's very easy to miss and it's very natural. I stop myself all the time with like excusing stuff that my kids do. And I'm like, wait, why are you doing this? I was just thinking that when you were talking, I'm like, oh, kids not comprehending things. Uh-oh. No, 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 no. <laughs> I always go, there, go there. if I walk into a room and I'm like, what am I doing in here? I'm like, oh God, here it comes. Yeah, okay. You can say, don't scare mommy. You have to. That's right. Coherently, please. <laughs> That's right. Mommy, mommy scares very easily. Don't put too much meaning into things. Okay. Thank you. Can you just live with me and tell me that in my ear all day? Okay, Maria, (laughs) next question. (laughs) Do you have any, I I know there's a spectrum of PPA, so not everything is going to work for everyone, but do you have any, you know, tactical pieces of advice for caregivers, you know, caregiving for a loved one with PPA? Is there anything that you find helpful? The best thing that I can really think about is that I think that that as a caregiver, you can provide practical and emotional support by, first of all, trying to provide your loved one with what they might need based on your familiarity with them and their signaling, and also to some degree by minimizing their effort and signaling to them that it's it's okay and that you're with them. I think your parents were very fortunate to have the both of you because I've also seen people with different types of dementia who didn't have such caring families. And that's really a horrible thing to see. I don't know about you, but like there are certain looks that I can give my husband and he knows what I need without me even saying it. And so having somebody that's close enough to you there with you that can pick up those signals, even when they have a hard time communicating them verbally is probably really helpful, you know, and, and you see how, you know, parents and kids sometimes have this language. You don't understand what the kid just say, but the parent really got it. Oh, it's obvious. They said, blah, blah, blah. And he wants this or that. So I'm sorry that I'm making these comparisons to kids. It's not, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it does sometime naturally comes up. So I, I think that's wonderful to see when a caregiver is close enough to the person with the disease and they can supervene or overcome some of these communicative difficulties because they know the person so well. And at a certain point, there's so much that you can do besides just being there for the person. And and I don't think that's such an excellent advice, but that's the best I can come up with. What I would just add to that, and Rachel is a big believer in this throughout the podcast, is having that confidence in yourself too as a caregiver that you you know what your loved one wants and needs and and stay true to that. Don't get in your head too much. Just like you said, there's certain people when you're close to them, you know what look, you know what they need and to, I don't know, just believe in yourself that you can care for them the way they need to be cared for. But go ahead, Rach, sorry. I just, because now that I am a PPA, I have knowledge what about using like visuals? Like if you have a chart of like a water cup, a, a sunny path that looks like a walk, um, a toilet, does that work in PPA? Does that work in FTD or people living with FTD? There are apps that do this. And I, I think they are helpful, at least in some stages of the disease. And it may also depend a little bit on the type. So when you, when we talk about PPA, 
if people have a semantic impairment, so they have SVPPA or some form of it, then maybe in the beginning, it might help them to see the picture because they, at first, they just can't come up with a name, but they lose object knowledge, which I mentioned earlier. So they actually, it's like they forget what the object is. We have one of the most impressive videos that I often show in educational presentations of uh, a person living with semantic variant PPA. And we're showing her some common household kitchen utensil. And she looks at it and she turns it around. She's like, it looks like she, she hasn't seen it ever before. It's like the first time she's seeing it, she doesn't even know what to do with it. She doesn't recognize it at all. It's not just that she can't come up with a name for it. And then the most impressive thing that I usually leave for the end is to tell people that this person used to be a professional chef. So absolutely, there's no doubt she's seen this thing before and she used it on a daily basis. So at some point, the pictures might not help somebody with a semantic impairment, but I can imagine it will be very helpful to people who have difficulty expressing themselves, but they absolutely know the objects like NAPPA, right? So whatever How, that is you amazing. Come up with, you should use, it's helpful. Um, but you should expect that at some point for some people, it might not be enough. So I asked that because I wanted to talk about the loss of knowledge. Is that what it's called? Object loss, loss of object knowledge. Mm -hmm. Is that seen across the board? Will, will a person with PPA eventually develop that? I want to say no. That's the official answer. When, But you do realize that when people have difficulty speaking and they can communicate with us, then it might be more challenging. But no, the answer is no, not everybody. It's a very specific feature of the semantic variant. People with NAPPA, and that's actually one thing that is probably very frustrating to people living with NAPPA because they absolutely understand what's going on around them and know what they want to say. They're just unable to say it. A lot of, maybe it's more common for, I don't know who's listening to this, but stroke aphasia is more common. And I've been surprised to see how many people around me with that has no relationship to medicine. They, they know what aphasia is. It's probably from stroke aphasia. And one type of stroke aphasia is the motor type of aphasia that people just can't express themselves, but they understand everything. And it's one of the most, you see on their faces how frustrating it is for them. So I believe that for them, it would be probably very helpful if you show them pictures to help them tell you their needs and wants. And they're not going to lose object knowledge, probably, because the problem is in a different area of the brain altogether. Um, we store the information about the objects in the more temporal parts of our brain. And the, the grammar knowledge um, and where we combine all these, where we think about the sentences is in the front part. So in order for you, have, for you to have both the disease, you have to, to include both these areas. So not everybody, no. But loss of object knowledge is really, I think, really hard to, for people to grasp because it looks like you just can't find the words to say what you want. But it, it can be super debilitating, too. You, too, mentioned how it's hard because people on the outside, they don't realize that this person is not some crazy person or some criminal. They have a real problem. They literally, they, it can get to the point that people can't take care of themselves because they don't know what to do with a knife, right? And they don't know how to use a toothbrush and basic things that have to do with your hygiene, right? They just don't know what to do with it anymore. 
that's loss of object knowledge. How scary. I mean, we have a fully functioning brain right now as we're speaking, but imagine that feeling of just being like, why are you handing me this? What am I supposed to do with this? It reminds me of to bring it kind of back to the children, Ariel in the little mermaid when she's brushing her hair with the fork. Like she just doesn't know what to do with that object, not because she has FTD, but because she's never seen it before. Just having that as an adult, like here's a cup and being like, what do I do with this? That must be terrifying. You know, maybe yes and maybe no, because that's another maybe, I don't know, wonderful thing about the brain, (laughs) maybe just peculiar. I don't know. Sometimes we have very good insight into our disease process. Usually that's when the disease is in the left side of the brain. But when it's in the right side, we actually don't have good insight. And then people are just surprisingly unconcerned. And that's actually a sign. You wanted to say it, I think, in your talk, Maria, was it you? Anosognosia. That's the term. Thank you. It's And we have another term uh, from French to describe this, la belle indifférence. It's when people surprisingly don't seem concerned about something that should really concern them about themselves. It's because they don't have the insight. And so sometimes when I see patients who don't have full insight, I feel like, kind of like you said, you know what, maybe you're a little bit lucky that you don't, because otherwise it would be terrifying. And I also see patients who have insight, and I think it's much more frustrating for them themselves. So do we know percentage-wise, how many people are being diagnosed with PPA versus behavioral variant? Or just generally speaking, are people being diagnosed more with behavioral variant? Is that more prevalent? What do we know about that right now? Actually, the those stats are surprisingly limited, depending on what paper you um, accidentally open up. And most of the papers, everyone has these small cohorts. But Depending on what you read, you you may find reports of PPA accounting for anywhere between 20 and 40% of all autopsy-confirmed FTD cases. So that's when we know there was FTD and we go back and see. And those are um, that's the range of numbers that we see for PPA. When people present to the clinic with something that somebody suspects to be FTD, we could see symptoms of PPA in maybe half of those cases. Wow. Okay. So first of all, on behalf of Maria and myself and all of the community behind us, we thank you so much for your work and dedication to this quote unquote rare disease. It means a lot to all of us. So thank you very much for diving in. Um, If we could just leave this community that I mentioned with a little bit of hope and good what would you say? What are you seeing? Do you see anything positive on the horizon? What's happening in research? I think there are a lot of positive things happening on the horizon and hopefully maybe closer. Um, There's still a lot of work to be done. I don't want to undermine that. But I think that there's much more awareness. I do see that for FTD specifically. I think that we are kind of prioritizing what's more important and what like the place for everything. And there's a lot of work on the underlying biology and modifying treatment trials. So disease modifying treatment trials, which is really great because 
just a few years ago, we barely even had those. And right now it's, mo it's more maybe for familial FTD because we have the genetic mutation, but that's only a step. So I want people to maybe remember that because it can be frustrating. Um, I heard a lot about, and we were discussing, why we have um, clinical trials for familial? What about sporadic? Why are you focusing on familial? It's a stepstone. It's a stepstone. I feel like if we have a breakthrough in one of these, the tau, the TDP, one of these, I feel like we'll have a, or amyloid, in AD, they're all kind of related, you know? I feel like we'll have a breakthrough in everything. I think it will be like an avalanche, like a cascade. Okay go and we'll all feel improvement in all of these neurodegenerative cases because we all suffer from the same problems that it's in the brain it's less accessible it's um, more complex presentation so i think we're getting there and there are also more resources that are available and accessible to people even people in remote places can hear you talk on the podcast and that's a resource for them and if we're able to develop these speech tools that I'm working on, then we'll be able to reach out to folks. They don't, they won't have to come all the way to, to Penn FTD Center. You know, we'll be able to collect speech from them whenever it's convenient for them at home at that moment that they're not, I don't know, agitated and, you know, quietly automatically upload the speech sample. And Dr. Irwin could be listening to it on the other side and get all this information from it. So things are becoming more accessible, more available. And so, yes, I think there's hope. If you could give somebody that's listening a big piece of advice, caring for somebody with PPA that was not given by Dr. Nevler, a personal experience, what would you say? Hmm. Can I give two things? Of course you can. Okay. One thing that I think we all have like regrets, right? Like mm -hmm. we all have that guilt and regret and we can reflect and go back. And one thing I wish I hadn't done with my mom was like quiz her. Mm -hmm. I I would, do you know if you, I feel like you, you of automatically course. knew what I meant by that. Yes. What is this? What yeah, is this? I'd be oh. like, what's my name? Like, I remember being in the car, mm -hmm. like looking at her and being like, what's my name? And why did I do that to her? I don't know that. I don't think it was to her. I think it was more for you. You weren't trying to like put her on the spot. And I knew you were she just... knew who I was, but I think it's just like a lack of understanding of the disease. And yeah, maybe trying to comfort me. I guess my second piece of advice would be to realize that there is, and I'm sorry, I'm so emotional talking about this, but there's so much nonverbal communication you can have with someone and don't really? discount that. When my mom walked into the room, when I was holding Liam in my arms and she couldn't really speak. We all watched her to see, what is she going to do? She ran to me and she started patting the baby's head and she wanted to hold him. And then she ran straight to Mike to give him a hug. And so don't discount that, you know, throwing on a song and having your loved one bop their head. There's communication that can still happen that's not verbal. And it can, when you look back, 
you're gonna remember those moments if you take the time to cherish them and to just be in the moment those moments are really important too Thank you for listening. This season, each episode has a companion blog post that we invite you to read on our website at remembermeftd.com slash blog. You can also check out our website for more support, more resources, and more community events. And you can follow all of our adventures on Instagram at remembermepodcast. A special thank you to the Penn FTD Center for their collaboration on this season, and a special thank you to our sponsors for supporting our work. For a list of sponsors, you can check out our show notes. This podcast is dedicated to Frank Baffa and Leah Kent. Beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent. Bailey Kent.